Hey y'all, my name is Cliff Watson, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Unlimited Costa Five Rivers Program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. Today we talk to Andrew Reichert from the National Capital Chapter of Trout Unlimited, NCCTU for short. NCCTU was the first East Coast chapter of Trout Unlimited and has quite a lot of history. We discuss this history, the fishing in the D.C. area, and also their new film, Turnaround. Join us to hear more about how this local TU chapter was able to make a long-lasting change in their community and beyond. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you have any questions, be sure to send them to fiverivers at tu.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Hey, Andrew. Welcome to Emerging. We're uh, super happy to have you here. Uh, looks sunny and nice where you are. It's snowy here in Boulder, Colorado. Libby was saying it's icy where she's is, she is. Um, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us what you do, where you live, all that fun stuff, and we'll get into the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Cliff. Yeah, it's, it is sunny. It's, uh, we've got about probably 12 inches of snow. I'm up in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, about an hour southwest of Charlottesville right now. Um, but I live full-time in Washington, D.C., and work in banking. Um, in a best way to describe it is I work in a financial crimes investigations intelligence role that will kind of just put that out there and move on from that for, <laughs> for the episode. There you go. Um, and uh, where I like to fish. Um, I do a lot of trout fishing, obviously, just being involved in TU, but uh, living in D.C., we have access to kind of a crazy range of fisheries. So I fish for everything from brook trout and mountain streams to uh, redfish on tidal flats in the bay um, and kind of everything in between. Last year, my big focus was smallmouth in the Potomac River and some of its major tributaries and other sort of Chesapeake Bay watershed major trips like the Shenandoah or the James River, things like that. Um, and yeah, just really excited to be here. What kind of flies you throwing for those smallies? Cause I've fished smallmouth with a spinning rod a bunch, but in the river, not too much with a fly rod though. I mean, it really depends on the time of year. Um, wait, like early, like kind of, I say after ice out here in the mid Atlantic ice outs, not what it is, you know, the further North you get, but first you're, you're throwing like clousers or other really heavy flies and you're just sort of slow bouncing along the bottom. And then as the water warms up, you move sort of up the water column with streamers mostly. And then kind of by the summer, I'll be using, um, poppers or, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the old Mr. Wiggly, which is a really popular smallmouth fly that originated actually in Florida of all places, but became very popular in Wisconsin. So I use sort of, work my way up the water column as the year goes back, it goes by. And then as the weather cools in the fall, kind of work my way back down the water column to the bottom until the season kind of shuts off. Um, yeah. Cool. And I didn't realize you had redfish up there in DC. That's crazy. Not in, not in DC. They're they're like an out, you know, they're like about a, the closest you could catch redfish from us. And that's not with consistency, but the closest I've ever seen one caught was about 45 minutes away. But okay. the consistent redfish um, is more like an hour and a half to two hours. Um, sure. Sort of further 
mouth and the Chesapeake Bay. Yep. Okay. Awesome. That's pretty cool. How'd you get started fly fishing? Uh, it's actually kind of a funny story. I was in college, um, senior year of college. I was Saturday night. I was at a party and a buddy of mine was like, do you want to go fly fishing? And this was, it was probably like midnight, 1 p 1 AM at this point. And I was like, sure. Where do you want to go? Um, and when, and he's like, fish the title Potomac. And we, got in his car and to be clear we were responsible drive, <laughs> you know, drive sober don't don't be reckless um but we drove over to uh, uh ronald reagan national airport on the potomac there is a uh outflow from basically a sort of an oxbow from the river that passes right next to the airport and you have to park on the other side of highway so we parked on the highway we parked in this like national parkland parking lot that is used by a lot of taxi cabs to wait outside the airport ran across six lanes of traffic and waiters <laughs> and then got in the river and i didn't know how to cast or anything and um we have schoolie stripers in the potomac that time of year and basically I just kind of would like, I try to just kind of like lob this Clouser minnow thing out and the current coming out of that oxbow grabbed it and I would just feed the line out. And then I didn't know what it was called at the time, but I was swinging Clousers across uh -huh. the current and, and, uh, caught a, not a big striper, but I caught like a little 16 incher first time out fly fishing, swinging Clousers at like three in the morning on an outgoing tide. Yep. And, uh, that was my first time fly fishing. That's awesome. Where, where were you in school? Uh, I went to Georgetown University oh, okay. in DC. Cool, mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, that, that's a great story. And I love the, you know, you just made it work, right? You didn't really know how to cast, but outgoing tide worked yeah. in your favor and you were able to hook a fish. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. great. So what's your uh, position with TU now? Uh, I know you're involved with Trout Unlimited in some level, so let's talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit. Yeah, of course. So I was the president of NCCTU for four years. Um our bylaws stipulate a four-year max, so I turned out in September, um, and now I'm serving. I'm still on the board of NCCTU. I'm our immediate past president, um, so still very involved. Not as not as involved as I was when I was president, but definitely still volunteer. Probably like twenty or thirty hours a month for NCCTU. Um, but yeah, so I've been on sure. the board for six years. And then which, uh, what is NCCTU? What does that acronym stand for? That is the national capital chapter of Trout Unlimited. So we're, there's sort of a constellation of TU chapters in the greater DC metro area, but we are the city of Washington itself, plus some of the inner suburbs on the Maryland side. Okay. Gotcha. What made you want to get involved with them? You know, how'd you, how'd you find out about that? What, what pulled you there? I'd rather be completely honest, actually, about why I got involved in NCCTU, which was I was applying to graduate schools. I wanted to get my MBA, and I was I had been in fly fishing for a few years, and I was told by people who'd gone to business school, you know, you need to be on some kind of nonprofit board. So I kind of looked around the D.C. area for different groups, and NCCTU had actually 
sent an email out and I was on their mailing list because I was a TU member in their area saying, Hey, we need people to join our board. So, so I showed up in October of, it was, yeah, it was like the fall two and a half years after I graduated college or three years and uh, came to a board meeting and kind of learned what was going on there. And they asked me to join and I was like, sure, why not? Um, the first like few months, it wasn't really, I didn't have like a formal title. I was just board member, um, but kind of learned what they what they were doing and then kind of started implementing changes pretty quickly after I joined. Cool. Why, uh, why do you think uh, business school wanted that nonprofit, you know, work to be able to apply and everything? Why do you think that was important? Um, so I think what it is, is do you, I'd rather, I'll just give the honest answer. I think to some degree it's, vir, it's, it's virtue signaling, right? Okay. Um, it looks good on when the schools are recruiting future students or they're, uh, soliciting donations from their alumni base. Um, it's good press to be able to demonstrate that the student base, your student body has invested in the community. Um, and so I think there's that, I think there's also the leadership component, right. Is, being on a board, um, especially at a young age, it's, I've learned a ton, um, just in the last six years between NCCTU and all these other sort of boards that I've then gotten involved in. But I think it's that leadership component too, and sort of demonstrating that. Yeah. But yeah, so that was how I first got involved, but it really morphed way, way beyond that, uh, pretty quickly. Sure. Did you end up going to business school and get your MBA? I'm in business school right now in okay. DC. I'm I'm back at Georgetown. I uh, I just I couldn't stay away. Yeah, yeah. I've heard good things. I had an uncle that went to school there and absolutely loved it. So he was pushing yeah. pretty hard for me to go there, but I didn't have the grades to get in. So I did. CU oh. Boulder took me instead. <laughs> yeah, well, CU Boulder is a fantastic school, and you know, um, you know, I, I was I was really lucky to get to go there, but. Um, you know, I, I think schools, almost any university in America, there's upsides and downsides to attending any of them. Definitely. What do you think the, the biggest thing you learn you learned running the NCCTU chapter was? Oh, um, patience. Ah, that good was one. The, big, the biggest thing I've learned is patience. Um, when I first joined the board, I was, you know, I was really pretty young. I was, you know, mid, mid twenties and ton of energy and just ready to kind of take the world by storm. And there were things I was able to do pretty quickly, like build us a modern website, you know, our, our, I think for a lot of people who've interacted with TU grassroots, they're used to kind of the, the website that looks like it's from 1998 and hasn't really changed um, so that was like the first thing and then getting us on social media, kind of the, the easier to implement changes around communications. Um, but some of the bigger changes that I and sort of other young people that came on alongside me as time went on, the certain big structural changes, they took time and it took patience and it took a lot of communication to kind of get those changes put in place and kind of moving forward. Definitely. Yeah. How, how long has that chapter been around for? Is it a pretty, you know, historic chapter? 
it is the 11th chapter. Uh, it was the 11th chapter in TU's history. So I think there's about 387. That number fluctuates. That's the number I know, but it fluctuates between like 380 to 390. Um, but yeah, it was the 11th chapter uh, ever. And it was the first one on the East Coast. Okay. So they were all in Michigan or elsewhere in the Midwest. And then DC was kind of the first place right. to have another chapter. Right. That's mm-hmm. something I forget frequently is that TU started in Michigan. Um, a lot of times I associate it so much with the East Coast. I think that it, you know, it always originated over there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a it's a Michigan thing out of the front of the gate. Mm-hmm. You know, and the one thing that's really interesting um, about TU is that people's perceptions of TU is like an inkblot test. Um, and what I mean by that is like I have friends who live in the Pacific Northwest and are really involved in steelhead co- you know conservation or just steelhead fishing and they think of TU as a Midwestern organization and then you talk to people in say Montana or Colorado because I always anytime I'm traveling I ask people or talk to people out you know around the country they think of it as an East Coast thing when you talk to people sometimes on the East Coast they think of it as a Michigan thing so it's like everybody's always kind of ascribing to you as being from somewhere, right. you know, as being, Oh, they really care more about this place than they care about where I am. Um, there's a lot of, I've encountered that a lot over the years talking to people. Yep. They're everywhere though. That's the coolest thing about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got projects yeah. everywhere, chapters everywhere. They do work everywhere. So mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. What's the, uh, yeah. if you had to pick your home water for NCCTU, you know, the one that most of your, your members or your chapter members fish, what would you think that would be? It depends on if you're talking just fishing or if you're talking trout fishing. And that's okay. what makes NCCTU's kind of, we're not unique. There are other, there are other TU chapters that have no cold water resources within their geographic range. Um, but we're, our nickname, our chat, our, our chapter's nickname is Shad Unlimited. Ah, and okay. we actually have uh, stickers that are called, that um, are, we've substituted the trout with a shad and have a sticker that's a shad unlimited and uh, hashtag save the cove, which is uh, a place called Fletcher's Cove. And I would say okay. that is NCCTU's home water. And it is um, Fletcher's Cove is on the Potomac within the boundaries of DC, uh, about three miles upriver of like the National Mall. Okay. And that is striped bass. We have smallmouth. Striped bass, American shad, hickory shad, walleye um, are kind of the biggest species you could target there. Um, and that's really, I would say, the bulk of our members fish at Fletcher's. If you were to look at cold water resources and where people fish, um, it's pretty much anywhere within like an hour to hour and a half drive. So anything from like south central Pennsylvania around, say, Chambersburg, PA, like Falling Springs and Big Spring Creek. Uh, the Gunpowder River, which is up near Baltimore, and then um, like Mossy Creek and Beaver Creek in Virginia or Beaver Creek in Maryland. Those would be the most common places people fish for trout. But our home waters for cold water now is actually uh, would be called the it's uh, the Catoctin Mountain region. Um, and we have an ongoing citizen science project there that we can talk about more. Sure. But yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Any of those. Um, those waters I would say are where our members are fishing. Cool. Tell me a little bit about shad fishing. Cause I've heard about it. I've never done it. Uh, it seems like <laughs> it's a pretty interesting fishery though. <laughs> yeah. It, well, what's interesting is the mid Atlantic. So hickory shad 
are they're both Atlantic seaboard fish and they're major forage fish for other species like stripers or um, Spanish mackerel or other saltwater sort of what you call warm saltwater species. Um, stripers are cool, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> but American shad are American shad are basically the northeast half of the country, and then hickory shad are the southeast half of the country in terms of the seaboard. In terms of they're both anadromous, so they run up out of the oceans up these fr- to the freshwater where they spawn, and then they come back out and return to the ocean. And we get both. So we have hickory shad tend to be a little bit smaller and they, the, the, we sometimes jokingly call them Potomac river tarpon, because if you actually look at just their face, when their mouth is open, they have a similar face shape to a baby tarpon. Um, but they get to, you know, I think 19, 20 inches and then American shad are, are bigger. Um, typically and typically fight harder and they're also more likely shad don't really jump that much like not really at all they kind of flop um but they i think americans fight uh harder and will typically kind of make a little bit more of a run and a little bit more they'll breach a little more um but yeah it's the fletcher's cove is there is shore fishing, but it's mostly from these rowboats, uh, and they're pretty famous. They they were handmade on the eastern shore of Maryland for decades. Um, now they're uh, roto molded plastic that they've been ordering. That is uh, like requires a lot less maintenance, less prone to pu- uh, punches, uh, punctures from like rocks and stuff. It's kind of a interesting place. It's tidal. Um, it's right at the fall line, so right where tidal meets non-tidal water, and it's been a place where people have been fishing for several thousand years at least since there were since indigenous peoples got to that part of the of um the eastern seaboard there have been people fishing there because of its sort of unique hydrology being at that fall line you had access to really sort of prolific fishing grounds uh, particularly in the spring Shad fishing, you're casting a full sinking line with a seven weight and two shad darts attached to it that are basically bright pink, bright yellow flies with a bunch of crystal flash for a tail. And you just cast them, you find where the current seams are, you cast them into the current seams, you let it sink for 15 seconds, and then you strip back towards your boat and eventually a shad will grab it. Um, And that lasts for like eight to 12 weeks in the spring. Uh, from the hickory show up first and then they kind of clear out by mid to late May and the Americans start showing up and they clear out by like sort of early June. Uh, Chris Wood, the TU CEO is like one of the most avid shad fishermen you'll <laughs> ever meet pretty much every day that I'm down there, uh, renting a boat and launching from the dock. I'm going to run into him. Um, so he's, he's quite the celebrity around the cove. <laughs> That's awesome. Seems like a great way to get mm-hmm. someone into fly fishing too. You know, it's not, it's, you're not mm-hmm. nymphing, you're not trying to mend and all that stuff. Just kind of open yeah. water, chuck it out, let it sink. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely a great introduction. Um, it's, I, I do it with my dad once a year and he's not much of a fly fisherman, but I kind of know he's going to catch fish. And when I'm introducing friends of mine who are like, Oh, I really want to try fly fishing. Um, Typically, that's the first place we'll start. That's great. So coming back to NCCTU and, and your involvement with them, uh, 
you know, we'll get into everything that you did with them. And, and I know there's a film we're going to talk about here pretty soon, but what was the, mm-hmm. the situation you walked into when you started to work with NCCTU on the board and, and what was happening within the chapter? Yeah. So when I first joined the board, so we had had this capital angling show and that had kind of been the primary purpose chapter had been to put on this show and it was, you know, they would have people from the fly fishing world come. Um, you know, they had like Kelly Gallup fly all the way out from Montana one year to do a big presentation and, um, and other famous luminaries whose names I'm forgetting. I think lefty Cray was the featured speaker one year, but it was like a weekend long, sort of predecessor to the fly fishing show or some of the other, you know, sort of regional fly fishing shows that then became very popular. So that started in the sixties at some point, I'm not really sure which year. Um, but basically the economics around that show changed. And by 2014, they shut down. So that was two years before I joined and they didn't really have a ton going on when I joined. They, They were were a pretty well-off chapter. Their show had been really profitable for decades. And we mostly, they were donating money to other groups to do things. Um, And then hosting their monthly meetings and kind of their one big event had become this thing called Shad Night. So that's part of the reason we're called Shad Unlimited is our big, big event of the year is Shad Night, um, hosted by Mark Binstead. Uh, who is uh, very famous in the shad fishing world. He runs the NCCTU Shad Report. But that's kind of what I came into, and we really had no cold water component to NCCTU at all. We were entirely focused on shad. And um, we had done some cold water stuff in the 80s and the 90s. They were involved in some kind of dam relicensing issue out west, Um I can't remember the name of the river off the top of my head. I'd have to look at our website. And then our one big project in the nineties was, uh, there's a very famous, there's sort of a lot of different famous spring creeks in central Pennsylvania. Uh, Latorte spring run is kind of known as the hardest place to fish on earth. There's some people who would strongly disagree with that. I'm sure. Um, but, uh, we had a, there's another one in South central PA called falling springs and that's, uh, pretty intact spring fed limestone Creek that basically NCCTU along with a bunch of TU chapters in Maryland and Pennsylvania, were able to basically, um, create conservation easements along a significant portion of the, of the stream and create riparian buffer zones. I think a pretty deep one, like a hundred feet each side. Um, it might not be a number is probably a little bit wrong, but basically, one big project. So yeah, I came into a chapter that was very much in decline and it was in decline in terms of like energy, but also demographically the entire board in the first six months, first seven months I was on the board. We had three board members die out of old age um, and, and sort of sort of age related illnesses. And so it was kind of, um, it was kind of bleak to be honest when, you know, and these were people who'd been on this board for decades. And so there were a lot of friendships there and there was, so there was like a serious amount of grief kind of going on too. So it was, yeah, it was, um, that was what I walked into yeah. and, uh, 
Yeah. And so we, but over time things definitely improved. And some of those people that were on the board when I first joined six years ago are still on the board. Some have moved away, retired to places like Florida and elsewhere and kind of moved on. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, that was kind of the situation. And, and I don't think that that necessarily is abnormal. Uh, a lot of TU chapters, the leadership um, has been sort of the same 10 or 15 people for decades. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it sounds like you had a, a pretty interesting, you know, position you stepped into. and uh, mm-hmm. But it does sound like things have changed a little bit. And since you've been involved and in the past four years, there's been some significant growth and everything. Do you mind talking about that a little bit and how things have been on the up and up? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, it was a friend of mine, Lucas was kind of the next young person to join the board. And he, uh, I didn't know him when he joined, he, he kind of came across NCCTU sort of himself as well. And we really hit it off and started sort of, throwing big events. We started hosting, you know, uh, film tour screenings and, uh, putting together this tournament called the title Potomac slam, um, and a bunch of sort of other like fun, exciting community events that got more people involved and sort of over time that kind of kickstarted the momentum that we needed. And basically over the last four years, we've, COVID kind of notwithstanding, we've really ramped up community involvement. So we have the film tour screenings, we have the tournaments, we have uh, a really interesting range of speakers from really kind of micro local people to, you know, very big name, you know, nationally known fly fishermen and fly fisher women, women who come in to talk to the chapter. And then, um, you know, we really, really gone heavy in a citizen science angle and really gone kind of all in on wild trout conservation. So we've moved away from, and again, this is painting with a broad brush. There's 387 chapters and each one's different, but we moved away from kind of the more classical TU adopt your local stream and, you know, maybe stock it with hatchery fish and do some tree plantings too. We went and identified where all the native brook trout are in Maryland, which we did by working with Maryland DNR and also our own thing that we have called the Angler Corps and a couple other sort of initiatives. And we've really focused on citizen science. So we're looking right now, we're mostly focused on water temperature monitoring, but we're adding um, water quality monitoring. So looking at sediment, looking at, uh, the chemistry of brook trout streams as well. And that's stuff that's coming down the line. We haven't really done we're like yet, but we're planning to build out. And then also the other thing that we're doing is, uh, exploring, uh, youth education component that's based off what they have in Montana and Wyoming called, uh, adopt a trout where we're going to do telemetry tagging studies to look at fish movements in uh, various watersheds. So we've really gone in that like heavy science sort of focused angle with what we're doing conservation wise. That's awesome. Sounds like a a big change and a big turnaround for the, the, you know, the whole chapter itself. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what caused that change? You know, what, what fueled that desire for a switch? 
Um, so when I first joined the board at NCCTU, my, a friend of mine who works for or, or Orvis at the time, he said, Hey, I know you're getting involved in TU. I want you to read this book entirely, an entirely synthetic fish. And, um, it introduced me to kind of the entire hatchery versus wild fish debate. And, you know, that's a debate that is still going on to the, to this day, especially, uh, with, I think a little less around brook trout, but in other cold water resources around the United States, it's still a very much a pitched battle, but, um, reading that book kind of made me more attuned. I, before that I fished hatch hatchery trout a lot and would kind of, I didn't follow the stocking truck by any means, but like I fished a lot of, you know, sort of local in inner streams around DC that would be, you know, being stocked. And I hadn't really paid much attention to brook trout. And then I started that book kind of was got me into learning about brook trout. And so Lucas and others that came on the board, particularly our new conservation chair, who's also named Andrew, um, really wanted to focus on wild trout and wild brook trout because like hatchery fish don't really need our help. They're going to come out of the hatchery anyway. And um, the, you know, wild, wild brown trout and brook trout and even wild rainbows, like, but particularly the brook trout need our help and they're facing a very wide range of threats that um, I'm very worried about their future. And it's sort of death by a million paper cuts and trying to protect certain, what we're calling strongholds, which is actually a, a state management strategy to identify certain places that we really want to prioritize. So yeah, it was kind of that book and then, you know, artificial from Patagonia and also just my own research and experiencing wild fish. It's just wild fish and hatchery fish are different and they behave differently and you fish for them differently and they, they look different and they just, their behavior, everything about them is different. So. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I've, I've seen it firsthand up in Alaska compared, you know, I fished for salmon out of Lake Michigan. I grew up in Wisconsin and Milwaukee and we fish, you know, in the Harbor for silvers and Kings and stuff. And the salmon mm-hmm. you get there are quite different from the wild salmon you get that come out of the ocean from being a pelagic species to running up a river, you know, hundreds of miles away. It, it's pretty incredible to see mm-hmm. what a wild fish can do versus a, a stocked fish. Um, so I'd love to get into this film and the main reason that, mm-hmm. you know, we're on the podcast together. So could you just introduce the film, tell us a little bit about what's it about and, you know, what to expect mm-hmm. from the film, what the goal was, all that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, the film kind of really talks about or really focuses on the things that we've already been talking about. So it's called Turnaround because it's really about how we turned around the chapter that was sort of fading away. And it's spelled turnaround with a capital T U because of, you know, trial unlimited. So, nice. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's really about, you know, we kind of go into what was the issue. So aging demographics, a chapter that kind of become very, uh, had reached a point of stasis and decline. Um, and then it talks about the solutions and what did we do to kind of arrest that decline. And we've grown, in the last four years, our membership's grown about 60%, um, just in terms of our base membership. And then if you look at our fundraising, we're up 500% in those five years. We're up 
uh, over a thousand percent in terms of our volunteer hours. So, I mean, it's just, we've had, you know, a, a lot, a lot of growth. Um, it doesn't go into like those statistics, but it, it sort of deals, it, it talks about really the citizen science, um, and what we were doing, what we're doing on Catoctin mountain, uh, brook trout, temperature monitoring and then it talks about this other group that we started called the uh the angler core which is um i would not call it science necessarily it's it's sort of angler science but it's it's a little to call it science would be i think a bit of a stretch but basically sure. what we do is we we send our conservation chair andrew is he actually has a book about all the wild trout streams of Maryland. And he is, he's the kind of guy who fishes small trout streams almost exclusively. Um, he's not fishing out of a boat. He's not on big tailwaters. He's always blue lining all the time. And um, he had developed before he joined to you, he had developed this unbelievable sort of encyclopedic knowledge of every little, you know, trickle across the state that held wild fish and he, there were gaps in his knowledge. There were areas he hadn't been. And so what we did is we basically went on GIS and mapped out and said, here's all of the streams that I haven't sampled, but based on uh, the geography. So they had heavily forested with good gradient undeveloped like places where we think that there could be wild trout and we basically create a list and we recruited entirely by word of mouth um people to get involved and everybody had to sign two contracts uh they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement um and they had to sign i forget what the other agreement was um but the the main one was the non-disclosure agreement was we were using this data in the state of maryland um, we don't have like in Pennsylvania, they have what are called class A blue ribbon trout streams. And those are afforded a very specific set of protections and are treated very specifically from fisheries management standpoint, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the hatchery issue. Um, in Maryland, what we have is we have four classes of use designations from class one up to class four. Class three use designation is a cold water resource and it has to maintain a temperature under 20 degrees Celsius um, I think it has some allowance for spikes above, but it has to kind of in the heat of the summer from July to August maintain under 20 C. Um, or it has to have a documented population of wild trout. So we would send the, we'd send these young anglers out to these different streams and um, actually Chris Wood is our one non young angler in that group. He's part of our angler core. He's um, young. What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. He's sprite. He's certainly sprightly. Yep. Um, so, um, but we would, we would assign them streams and they go, would go and fish and come back with a stream report. Here's what I saw. Did it. And we had, a, we had one stream where we found wild trout that had never been documented by Maryland's, uh, fish and game which is DNR department of natural resources. And so they went in with electroshocking and found wild trout. And so then begins the process, the regulatory process of changing that use designation for that stream. 
Um, and so that project's still ongoing and we're still looking at all these other streams and trying to identify additional populations of wild trout. We're actually kind of running out of streams in Maryland. And so we're now exploring whether we'll partner with people in maybe Virginia or Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's mind blowing quantity of cold water mm-hmm. has more cold water than Montana. Wow. Um, so, um, but yeah, so that That's was the great. angler core. Mm-hmm. Why'd you, and I love that you decided to have kids go out and, and youth to go out and do the fishing and stuff. Any reason why you, y'all decided to, to go that route? Well, I mean, it wasn't, ex- I, I should also rephrase that in that it wasn't exclusively like you had to be under a certain age. Okay, sure. Um, but there are one thing about small stream fishing is it's pretty physically taxing and there's a high degree of risk of injury, particularly for people who may not be as mobile. Um, and so that kind of limits the pool of people who can participate to begin with. Um, but also it was really, it was kind of killing two birds with one stone. It was also meant to be a youth recruitment tool. So Mm -hmm. it was both looking for data, but also a way to give people a chance to get involved. Um, same with the, the temperature monitoring, you know, we, as people really enjoyed the temperature monitoring because you get to go out for a day, you're in waders, you've got a sledgehammer and a bunch of rebar and, and some monitors and you're just hammering that stuff into the stream bed and, and installing it. And you, you personally don't need to be a, uh, stream restoration expert or a water systems engineer, you can still go install those and know that they're going to be used for like sound science. Um, so I, I think both of those aspects were really, they were, we were able to get a lot of people involved that otherwise they're never going to come to a TU chapter meeting. Right. Um, or some of kind of the more classic engagement methods, but you give them a way to go outside and do something. Um, yeah, people were excited to get involved. Definitely. Yeah, it's a great hands-on way to get people involved because, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you meet someone and you say, hey, you know, I'm part of you, we have a chapter meeting, and they're like, okay, well, what, I'm going to go sit here and, you know what I mean, listen to some people talk, and that's yeah. about it. But then if you're mm-hmm. like, hey, we're doing this really cool project, and, you know, I see you got a young one that likes to fish, why don't you all come out, you know, we'll do some mm-hmm. stream, you know, water gauging, temperature gauging, find new wild trout. That's so cool. And, and a lasting connection mm-hmm. with that person. So that's a great way to get them involved. What's, uh, what's your biggest goal with the film? What are you hoping to accomplish with the turnaround film? Um, twofold. Uh, the first is to engage with millennials and Gen Z that are in the already, most likely already in the fly fishing community and it's an appeal, you know, just get involved, go out, join your local TU chapter and make it, you know, make a difference, make a change, you know, bring a new perspective um, to your local chapter and, and modernize things. Um, that's really one of the things that you, these, a lot of these CU chapters that I interact with, whether it's in Maryland or even just across the country, um, are pretty predominantly staffed, quote unquote, you know, unpaid, but volunteer staffed by a very specific demographic of, of 
men over the age of 65. And it's certainly not, it's not like there's not a place for them too. It's, you know, we need kind of everybody in on this. And if you like to fly fish, if you care about wild trout, like get involved in your TU chapter and start doing, start doing projects that fight for wild fish. That's kind of the, the real message. Um, and then the, the second side of that message is actually really at that existing legacy membership. The, those, those older gentlemen, the esteemed, the esteemed elder statesmen will, will, will say. Um, and it's, you know, one thing I've encountered, I encountered early in my years at NCCT and it got a lot better and, and people were generally open-minded, but there was resistance to change. And in, I have, I receive outreach from young people who are coming into TU relatively frequently across the country, uh, voicing frustrations with, I joined my local TU board. I want to make a difference. They won't let me do X. They won't let me do Y. They won't let me do Z. It's, and sometimes, you know, I, I don't know the specific situation. Maybe in that specific situation, doing X is not appropriate, but sometimes it's as simple as like, I want to start an Instagram account and the cha- the chapter doesn't see the value. And so that's really the other, it's kind of targeted at both ends of the spectrum, which is to say, you know, I go to all these regional rendezvous and I hear the, the older TU members constantly talking about, you know, I, I, we want younger people, we want younger people, but then guess what? With letting younger people in, there's going to come some degree of change and you're going to need to be okay with that. Um, and that's kind of the second message of this is like the youth need, the younger people need to come in, but the, the, the gener, the, the older generations need to be willing to give an inch to gain a mile, um, and create space for those young people to really make a difference. Absolutely. That's a great goal. And, and, you know, I hear about it even, you know, with us and we're, we're lucky here with the Boulder Flycasters that, uh, they've always wanted, one of the CU fly fishing club officers to sit on the board to, you know, Mm -hmm. have us tell them what we're doing, what we're working on. Uh, they offer internship opportunities for us, you know, like they wanted a new social media platform. So they said, Hey, do you have any students that want to take this on? It's like five hours a week and, you know, we'll sign off on internship hours, volunteer hours, whatever it might be. So I think that's Mm -hmm. a great point that, there's a lot of a lot of change that can occur, and in order for that change to happen, you know, there has to be a willingness and an acceptability to that change that that has to be discussed mm-hmm. by everybody. But you know, needs to be recognized from the top down that it's important to occur, and it's important for it mm-hmm. to progress as a national organization and a local organization. That you know, mm-hmm. we gotta gotta make changes every now and then, and and that's totally okay. So that's a great goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just want to interject here. Um, I think it's important too, and, and you kind of noted this, Andrew, that um, when you're targeting this, the younger, the newer generation of fly anglers, I think it's, um, it's you know, that, that generation looks differently than people who have mm-hmm. taken up the sport of fly fishing in the past. Um, you know, it's, it's not just white men that are doing it and, and people know that. And so what's, I just wanted to see if you had any, any thoughts or ideas on ways that chapters can more effectively reach, um, that, you know, that different, more diverse group of people. And I know that, yeah. you know, so many different, different things that people can do, but just wanted to get your, your yeah. Opinion, um, yeah. I mean, 
that could be a conversation in of itself, uh, an entire Absolutely. podcast episode, but, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think it, it really, it starts with a recognition that we're all in this together. And I know that that sounds naive almost. Um, but our local, you know, our local TU chapter has been very good about being welcoming. Uh, I think, I think we, we've, we historically, we had some struggles even when I first was on the board. I don't think I did the best job even personally when new people would come to a TU meeting of really like reaching out and making them feel welcome. And it's something I, I had to work on and, and it's something that we worked on. Um, but also our, our local, our other local fly fishing club that we do a ton with from Fly Fishers International, which was uh, called the Title Potomac Fly Rodders. I mean, historically, they've also they they've been probably one of the best examples especially in their early years um of really welcoming any if you like to fly fish you have a place here was pretty much the attitude and um it sounds so simple and but in some ways it kind of was and you know i I think that's one of the biggest things and then at the local level i think it's you know things like United women on the flyer or, or, um, you know, TU now has its women's initiative. Uh, I'm on the board now of fly fishers international. We have FFI women connect is, is those deliberate efforts to create space. And I've seen, you know, like not Jerry on the fly. I think it's called like fly fishing FBI or whatever, (laughs) which is, you know, yeah, which can, you know, I, I think it can be pretty funny sometimes, but I saw one that was like, you know, why do, it was basically saying that like women's fly fishing organizations don't need to exist. You know, I don't know. I I don't agree with that. Like, and I I think the proof is in the pudding that they do need to exist right now because there's so many women I've talked to across the sport who say I want, and it's not universal, right? Again, this isn't a blame game where I'm pointing, I'm trying to point fingers at everybody. But what I will say is, I've heard it behind closed doors from enough women whose opinions I trust and who I don't think are people who are just overly sensitive that they walk into a space and they're not welcome. And so to some degree, you have to create, you have to create critical mass where there's enough women where everybody has to like, where it's not just one woman in a room with 50 men, there's 30 men and 20 women or 50 men and 30 women. Like, you know, you're adding to it. It's not addition. It's not subtraction. It's just addition. And so, I mean, I think those are really big things. And so we have in DC, we have women on the water, which is run by my wife. And it's a collaborative effort of our, of NCCTU, our local FFI club, um, our local fly shop, our Orvis stores, like everybody's kind of rallied around it because, you know, it's not, it's not like, we don't want them to be only in women on the water. We want to create what we're really trying to do is just create an avenue to bring more women into both organizations by giving them, it's a gateway. It's not a, it's not a separate pod. It's part of the greater whole, but it's just a way to, it's an onboarding mechanism, if you will. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, that you use that example of the, you know, one woman in the room with 50 men and like, as the woman who's been in that room, um, it like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. And I would love to see, you know, us get closer to that 50, 50 ratio and, and to see, um, more women involved. But I think just to be like 
a realist for a second there for a while, like we're going to have to keep showing up as, you know, the singular or the, you know, one or two or three women Mm -hmm. in the room um, with all of these men, which is fine. And in those situations, which like we're going to keep running into, that's when we need like you all to step in as allies, allies, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's something that the chapters and chapter leaders can do is, you know, when, mm-hmm. when their um, member diversity is not looking so great and when they do have, you know, one or two women present, um, that's when they can really take steps to um, amplify mm-hmm. it and highlight those voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so just wanted to, to throw that in there as well, but yeah, definitely um, agree with, with everything you said there. Great point, Libby. Uh, Andrew, in regards to, you know, any advice you might have for other chapter leaders across the country that are struggling with getting more women involved in their chapter or more young people, um, a more diverse audience within their within their chapter, do you have any advice for them? And you know, how do you think that they should change their chapter or work to, to achieve that goal? I think it's, it, there's sort of a lot of prongs to that. Uh, strategy and it's saying to be clear nccTU is not perfect in this and we've it's something that we're we're still working towards every day but um I, I think it's when when somebody knew and, and it's actually more of a universal rule it's not so much uh, oh a woman came so now we have to we should reach out to her it's really anytime anybody knew of any age or gender comes in is, really welcoming them, making sure that they are, I think it's, it's making the effort to reach out to that person as they come in the door, make sure that they know that they're welcome in the space, but then also um, engaging with them and saying, here's the things that we're trying to do. You know, would you like to participate in X, uh, Y or Z activities? And then also, you know, um, I think recruit people to the board, particularly people that are demonstrating an eagerness. If you detect even the slightest bit of eagerness, <laughs> you want to jump on that person right away because um, it is recruiting at the grassroots level is hard. Um, and I think the other thing, particularly in terms of recruiting women, um, is the, the ally piece, as Libby said, is, you know, being willing to like, if, if you see, if you hear some, if you hear somebody saying something that could be unwelcoming is, you know, sort of calling them on it, you know, like, that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to, you know, we, we want these people to feel welcome here if we're going to grow and we, we can't be saying, oh, it's nice to see you know, I I don't even want to go there, but just the, yeah, it's just about creating a welcoming environment and calling out, uh, and not publicly, but like if you see something in a way that's, you know, appropriate, just taking someone aside and be like, look, here's what we're trying to accomplish. And I think agreeing on it as a board that that's, part of your culture now and really working towards making that part of your chapter's culture is incredibly important. Definitely. I think, I think goals and culture are huge and, and making an established culture within your leadership and saying, this is what we stand for. This is what we don't stand for and making sure you nip things in the bud when they get started, you know, that can really do a lot for, you know, allowing people to feel welcome. 
Do you have any advice for somebody that is a young person? Uh, and especially since you were in those shoes, you know, somebody that is trying to get more involved with their local chapter, but is feeling some resistance, right? Is saying, Hey, I want to start social media, but, uh, the, you know, the board is like, no, you can't do that. You know, what do you recommend they do to sort of help and give themselves an advantage in that position? Um, the two things I'm going to say sound sort of contradictory, but one is patience, right? Um, if you come in and immediately try to change everything right off the bat, which is typically my instinct when I walk into a situation is to try and, uh, make a bunch of change really quickly and, and really drive things forward, uh, which almost never works, but, um, is to be patient and pick your battles, um, and drive change forward where you can, um, and to find allies. Uh, so if you, get involved in your local TU chapter and there's you, you find, find a couple of the people on the board that are really welcoming and really is to sort of inner is to create, you know, create a relationship with those people first. Um, especially if they've been on the board for a while or they have, you know, sort of credibility that you may not have just coming in brand new and explaining kind of what are you trying to do? Well, I want to get more young people in and having an Instagram or, you know, God forbid a TikTok channel, <laughs> um, you know, is, is going to help us reach people because Instagram has made a huge difference for NCCTU. That is our primary way we recruit people is our DMs, people DMing us on Instagram. Um, but, you know, explaining why and then how and getting those people sort of bought in having them backing you up is what's going to help you drive change. Um, and then the other thing is to some degree is afraid to not ask permission. Sin first, ask forgiveness later. Yep. If there's some, it's sometimes, sometimes there's things you want to do and you're going to, if you go to the, go to the, you know, if you go to the president of the chapter and he says no, and again, I'm talking little things like, you know, I want to do a trash cleanup or something mm -hmm. like get somebody else on the board to give you cover and just go do it. If that, you know, it's, it's things like that is, um, there are occasions where you have a good idea and you just go do it. Yep. And they could be, they could be mad at you, but if it's successful, they won't be. Exactly. That, that, that's great yeah. advice. And to bring this, you know, towards the five rivers, uh, mm -hmm. sense of things for our students. I think, you know, the main point here is, you know, while you're in school, get involved with to you. And then also after mm -hmm. school, you know, really, really try to take part in that, that local mm -hmm. mission, but then also, you know, get involved on, you know, projects that you really care about, you know, across the whole mm -hmm. country. Um, I'd love to hear you touch on that. And then also, you know, why do you think that's so important? Why is that necessary? Not only for the chapter itself, but like for the individual, I feel like it's a huge, huge reason to do that is the individual growth that comes from it. And do you have any thoughts about that? I do. So I'll try and answer each of those, um, questions kind of in turn. So the, I'll start at the individual level. So I, I think, one of the things that's great about getting involved with like a TU chapter or an FFI club or, or some other grassroots organization um, is the personal growth it, and it's personal growth in a relatively low stakes environment. And 
I've learned a ton about leadership. I've learned a ton about even management, even though all of the volunteers that I was managing as president were unpaid. Um, I, I grew a ton over the last five or six years in ways that if I was only focused on my career and I went fly fishing with my buddies on the weekend, which I do a lot of that as well, but if that was it, um, I don't think I'd be the same person I am today. And I don't think I'd have taken away nearly the same life lessons that I have. Um, it's also the thing with TU that's been interesting is the range of experiences I now through to you and I've been, you kind of talked about that national range. So I, I've been involved in everything with TU and other groups from everything from, I've met people from Alaska, Montana, Idaho, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, Washington, Oregon, California. I mean, pretty much, I think I've interacted with people in TU from like 37 different States. And worked on everything from doing things in DC with TU national and through the chapter on Bristol Bay, um, to through FFI, I've been, you know, dealing with the Atlantic state fisheries management committee, straight bass management plan and amendment seven, which if you're from Colorado, you probably have no idea what I just said, but <laughs> basically it's, uh, it's just a straight, it's, it's deciding the future of striped bass. And so it's, you know, it, it's exposed, I've been exposed to such a broad range of people and opportunities and ideas. Um, so I think on an individual level, not only are you giving, but you, there's a lot of benefit uh, that comes to you as a person at the local level, local conservation really matters. And particularly when you're looking at trout, because so much of our native trout, whether it's cutthroats in the West or brook trout in the East or rainbows when you go really far west, right, into the Pacific drainages. Um, those are death by a million paper cuts. Every single little stream matters because the way that you maintain biological divers is by having the interconnectedness of a watershed and allowing those fish to move and be able to reach cold water ref refuges. So if I have a watershed where only 20% of that water can support wild trout in August and all of a sudden I build a dam or some kind of barrier where the 80% of the other fish can no longer get there in the summer, they're all going to die. And so all of a sudden your genetic pool shrinks dramatically. And so when you look at, it's like being a heart surgeon where instead of dealing with the heart, you're dealing with every single capillary. And the only way to do that is by having boots on the ground and you can't, you can't do that with staff. There's not enough money in this part of the nonprofit world to do it with just staff. You need those water keepers. You need those people that are out there watching out for the resource because like we've lost 93% of all the wild trout streams that we had in Maryland from 1900 to today. And we're projected to lose 50% more of those streams by the end of 2050. And so we're, it, we're in a fight for our lives. And like, that's what I would say to young people is like, we've been dealt a kind of crappy hand as a gen as a couple generations. And we've got to fight to keep what we've got because particularly in small stream trout, like there are, whether it's development in, you know, and I'm even, you know, invasives, I'm even talking brown trout and rainbow trout colonizing brook right. trout or 
or cutthroat streams. You have colonization from other species, you know, land use changes. You've got wildfires out West. Like there's a lot of different, then you've got climate change, you know, rising warm, you know, water temperatures. Like there's a saying in the air force that the last fighter pilots already been born. There's also, I've heard sayings in the cold water conservation community that the last trout fisherman's already been born. And I don't know that it's really that dire, obviously, like, and one of the interesting things we found in our citizen science project is we actually have more resilience in some of our brook trout streams that we studied to rising air temperatures than were originally projected. Um, but it's pretty bad. And, you know, if you want to be able to fish for wild, wild trout and particularly native trout, like you can't afford to kind of say, I'm going to just let somebody else handle it because the cavalry isn't really coming. The most of the people that are in TU leadership today are not going to be here in 15, 20 years. So we need the later generations to come in. And I know that might sound dire and dramatic, but like, I really do believe it's true. Definitely. And I think that I've never heard that, you know, that statement about fighter pilots and the last one being born. And then especially the one about the last trout angler being born. I think that is, it hits the nail on the head and you're right. The cavalry is not coming because we are the cavalry. And if you're not, you know what I mean? Marching along, taking care of things, it's, uh, you're, you're behind the eight ball essentially. So, mm-hmm. all right, Andrew, I've got one more, you know, big question here before we wrap up, but you were very honest with, you know, why you got involved and, you know, to, to achieve that MBA sort of you know, checkbox. But why did you stay involved, right? Because obviously you've not only stayed involved, but you've gotten more involved and you're deeper into it now <laughs> than when you got in. It's a really yeah. cool story. So I'd love to hear yeah. why you still do it and, and what keeps pulling you and, and pushing you to be involved. I, uh, God, it's just so cheesy, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's love. It's just the love for wild fish and the places that they live and just like, I was a golfer before I got into fly fishing and golf was a sport that I actually felt ultimately took more away from me than it gave back. Okay. Um, and I feel in terms of like, I would walk off after 18 holes and I was normally tired, frustrated and dissatisfied. Whereas I have days where I'll go out and I'll fish and particularly if I'm doing something harder, um, like flats fishing or if I'm on a spring Creek in Pennsylvania, that's like the Latour or something like I'll get skunked, but I never have, I never walk off a river or an estuary or a lake feeling worse than I went on. And I, you know, I'm, I've kind of evolved outside of just trout conservation. I'm still very involved and I, I care a lot about brook trout and, and cutthroats in particular. Um, but I've really kind of expanded into native fish in general. Like this is going to seem like a really way out there, but I, one of the things I've become pretty gung ho about is bowfin conservation. Mm, nice. And um, I was introduced to bowfin by a, a guy in Vermont named Drew Price that I met through some friends of mine at Orvis corporate. And um, now I've, we have an incredible, we have this exceptional blackwater 
sort of ecosystem around the mid Atlantic and these swamps with uh, this type of cypress tree. That's five. They, they lived to over 500 years old and they're the only cypress tree in the world that sheds its leaves. Uh, they're called bald cypress and they, and both the bofin live in these swamps and it's, they're beautiful fish. They are. And everybody, you know, they're treated as trash fish, but same reason I fight for brook trout. There's a lot of people who say, who cares about brook trout? You know, these tiny little fish, the size of your, you know, the size of the palm of your hand, you know, both in live in beautiful places. And some people don't look at a swamp and say, Oh, that's gorgeous. But I don't know. And it's in the golden hour and the lights coming through the trees, through the Spanish moss. And you know, the, the, uh, the crickets are chirping in the summer and you're catching a 30 inch plus apex predator fish that, has not really evolved in 15 million years. And it's just this unbelievable specimen. Like it's the, it's that, that's what I'm fighting for is, is not just so that I can have that experience. It's like, what a tragic loss for humanity it would be if my children or my children's children, they don't get to go fish a brook trout stream or they don't get to go and catch that bowfin or they don't get to go out on the bay and catch a striper because we fished them into oblivion or like there's we have at every level of the watershed we've got threats that uh, to our wild fish that to me that's that's what keeps me going every day it's awesome great answer and i hope it inspires some other people to to be as involved as you are god even half as involved as you are you're doing great work so so we appreciate it all the way across the country over here and it's great to hear about um in regards to the turnaround film when can people expect to be able to see that um so the film itself is finished, but we are iron, still ironing out a few details in terms of uh, of how it's going to be distributed. Um, it's very likely going to be in one of the sort of nationwide film tour type things, um, film festival kind of uh, things. Um, is also we're hoping that it will come out uh, through um, one of our partner media channels within the next three to four weeks. Um, we'll, uh, you know, as soon as NCCTU, as soon as it's ready to go, we'll obviously out to five rivers and share it with your, with all your members around the country and, um, you know, hopefully be able to get some, get some, get some love from, uh, the folks at TU national, as well as some of our under other industry partners. And I'll be, I'm hopeful that it'll be within the next two to four weeks. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. I will make sure to, uh, when the film does come out, put some notes in the show notes and everything like that so everyone can find it. But I really appreciate having you here. I know Libby does as well. And our Five River students appreciate what you're doing and and appreciate you being on here and talking a little bit. So great chatting with you and hopefully we'll see you on the river one day. Yeah, absolutely. Cliff and and Libby, I can't thank you enough for uh, both your time and for giving me a giving me a chance to come on and, and reach your uh, your members absolutely have a great day <laughs> thanks you too take a deep breath and you'll feel brand new